0: Got one behind you. Come on. All right. Glad everybody's here. Come on in. You all ready to pray? It's a new year. Let's start the new year by praying, okay? Let's fold our hands and bow our heads and close our eyes. Dear Jesus, thank you that we have a new year and that we can look forward to spending time with you and coming and singing and learning from the Bible and knowing you better. We pray that you would make that happen this year for each one of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, everyone. Hi. Hi. Well, that was relatively peaceful. You want to get out your sermon outline. It says, the plagues of the Lord. Aren't you glad that you're here today to hear about the plagues? I know, couldn't wait. And we have about two and a half chapters, not quite a hundred verses. So I'm not going to make you listen to them because they're quite repetitive. But I am going to read some from Exodus 7 and then some from Exodus 9. But our text today goes from halfway through Exodus 7, verse 14, all the way through chapter 9, verse 35. So I'm going to just read two sort of representative texts so you can get the uh, sort of the main points here. And all of the text is not in your bulletin or it would have been a multi-page thing because there's so many verses there. But um, let's turn to, I'm going to read, start with Exodus 7, verses 14 through 18, and then we'll go to Exodus 9. I'm going to read verses 13 through 16 there. Like the first five pages of my manuscript are all the text. So there's a lot of text. So Exodus 7, starting at verse 14. And uh, we're going from uh, the, the setting here is... Uh, Moses is beginning to confront Pharaoh, and uh, we're getting ready for the plagues. Remember, we didn't want to do the plagues for Christmas, and uh, so you're welcome, Uh, but now they're back, and uh, so we're going to get them uh, now. And uh, God is teaching us some really, really big things, and it's not just to punish the Egyptians. So Exodus 7, verses 14 through 18 Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. So we go through, that's the first plague, the Nile turns to blood. Then we go through the plagues of the frogs and the gnats and the flies and the livestock. And then we get to, um, and then the hail. But right in the middle of chapter 9, verses 13 through 16, we get the passage that was actually in your responsive reading this morning. It's quoted again in the book of Romans. Starting there, chapter 9, verse 13. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and as always, we are desperately in need of it. We need to be reminded of what makes you so great. We need to see the glory of the Lord. When we see your judgments in your word, we would not be deaf with our ears. We pray we would not be hard with our hearts. Cause our hearts to be soft to your words. Help us to see your warnings and flee to you. Help us to praise you as we see your providence and your sovereignty displayed. Father, before us, This morning is your holy, inerrant, and authoritative word. And our hearts are prone to wander, Lord, as the uh, great hymn says. We're prone to leave the God we love. We are idolaters by nature. Our hearts are idol factories. And so as we bow our heads before you, we cry out that you would take hold of us by your word and by your spirit. Forgive us our idolatry. Tear from the throne of our hearts every idol we've invented in order to set apart Christ alone as Lord. Due to our idolatry, we need a rescuer. We need a deliverer. We need a redeemer. We need a savior. We need the salvation he offers. And so we pray, by the power of your spirit, help us see Jesus. We ask these things in his name. Amen. Amen. All right, I know you've been waiting with bated breath to get to the plagues. I'm sure some of you, it's your life verse. Well, actually, at the end of April, we will come to one of the most familiar passages in the Bible, certainly the most familiar passage in the book of Exodus, and that's Exodus chapter 20. And you know what's recorded in Exodus chapter 20, the Ten Commandments. And do you remember what the first commandment says? Exodus 20, verse 3, You shall have no other gods before me. It's the first commandment. It's first not just in order, but it's first in priority. In fact, all the other commandments are a reflection of the first commandment. To have no other gods means that God himself has an exclusive place of prominence, and obedience. It means there's no one greater, no one more important, no one more worthy of worship than him. It means that nothing is greater than God. You shall have no other gods before me. That's the first commandment. But what did God say just before he gave this very exclusive decree? He said Exodus 20 verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God claims exclusive obedience from his people based on what had previously taken place in Egypt. And what happened in Egypt? God's people were slaves in Egypt and God delivered them. He brought them out. There is an exodus from Egypt, hence the name of the book. And it's God who makes it happen. In the first six chapters of Exodus, we learn that God is a God who hears. The cry of his people reached his ears. He heard their groaning multiple times. He says, I have heard my people. I have seen my people. I know they're suffering. And now in Exodus 7, we get sort of another picture of God because we start this point where God's actually going to deliver his people. And this concept of rescuing people from hopeless oppression becomes the basis of the New Testament concept of redemption through Jesus Christ. But we also learned, you have to think all the way back into November now, before uh, Thanksgiving, that the way in which God delivers is very important. He doesn't just deliver, but he delivers through judgment. In other words, God simultaneously rescues his people and brings justice. He redeems by defeating his enemies. He delivers his people by force and shows the world that he is the Lord and there is no one else. And the plagues are the judgment through which God delivers his people. God turns the natural elements of Egypt against them, while at the same time demonstrating that the Egyptian gods allegedly connected to those natural elements are nothing, have no value, have no power. God judges Egypt using their own gods in order to free his people. He delivers through judgment. So when God says... I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. He's not just talking about deliverance. He's reminding the Israelites that they saw what he did to the Egyptian gods, what he did to Pharaoh, what he did to the entire Egyptian army. God has a right to declare that they have no other gods before him. He has proven in their deliverance that he is supreme over all rivals. So why talk about the Ten Commandments when we're not going to get there for another three months? Simply because the first commandment sets the stage for all these chapters. We're taking on two and a half chapters today. And so we're going to have to look from the big picture perspective. I'm not going to take the plagues one at a time because I think They're all interconnected, they're all related. The plagues, and we're gonna go through seven of them today, really repeat the same themes over and over, driving the same message home. And so we're gonna look at the plagues in general, organizing our thinking around three headings. And the first one is the priority of knowing God. The priority of knowing God. That should be the first blank there in your outline. And we begin with the priority of knowing God because that's the big idea of the plague cycle. The point that God seeks to drive home for both Pharaoh and the Egyptians, for Moses, Aaron, and the Israelites, and for all of us. God is making the point that his agenda in all that he does is to make his great name known. That comes out again and again in the text, Exodus 7, verse 5. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Chapter 7, verse 17. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with a staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. Exodus 8, verse 10. He said, tomorrow, Moses said, be it as you say, so that you may know there is no one like the Lord, our God. Chapter 8, verse 22. On that day I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies uh, shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Chapter 9, verse 14. For this time I'll send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know there is none like me in all the earth. Chapter 9, verse 29, Moses said, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease, there will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. Why does God judge the Egyptians and deliver Israel in this manner? Why, for that matter, does God do anything that He does? He does it so that His name might be known, that we know there is none like Him in all the earth. That's what God's doing. That's His purpose and His design in all His works from creation through providence to redemption. That's why he sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, so that his name might be known. John 1, verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Jesus came to make God known. It's God's agenda for your life. Look at what Jesus himself said. John 17, verse 3. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. God's agenda all the time is that his name may be known in all the earth, that his glory be displayed to the infinite joy of all who trust in his Son, and to the distress and rebuke of those who rebel against him. So the big idea, the macro theme in the plagues, is that God wants to be known. He's displaying his character to us as a just judge and a gracious savior at the same time. And I want us to see how he does that in the pattern of the judgment of God. That's the second blank there, the pattern of the judgment of God. First, you have the priority of knowing God, and second, the pattern of the judgment of God. Exodus is teaching us that when God acts in judgment, he accomplishes a number of things in addition to making his name known. He exposes counterfeits, he warns rebels, and he hardens hearts. We already saw some of that when we looked in the first half of chapter seven, back in November, when the magicians were able to replicate the transformation of Moses' staff into a serpent. They could repeat the miracle But they couldn't overcome it and they couldn't remove it. And in the end, Moses' staff, uh, Moses' serpent ate their serpents. Moses' staff ate their staffs. And the same is true at the beginning of the plagues. The magicians could replicate the miracles, but they couldn't end it. They could make things worse, but they couldn't make things better. So Moses brought frogs. They say we could do that. So now we have twice as many frogs. And if you read the thing on frogs, it says they're in your house, and they're in your bedroom, and they're in your bed, and they're in your cabinets, and they're in your oven, and they're in your kneading bowl. So you get the idea. There's frogs in everything. It's not like one or two. It's like hundreds and hundreds. And so they said, well, how about thousands and thousands? And they make more frogs. But they can't stop it. They can't remove it. They can make things worse, but they can't make things better. Only God can end the plagues. And then finally we get to the plague of gnats. This one just gives me the creeps. Just you think of the gnats like getting in your eyes and your ears. and Yeah. But even then, the magicians say, Exodus 8, verse 19, then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. And so the magicians are exposed as counterfeits and frauds. But so too are the gods of Egypt themselves. The plagues of Egypt are judgments, not only on the people of Egypt, but also on the false gods and pagan idols of Egypt. And so, for example, Hapi is the name of the deified Nile River in Egyptian religion. It's worshipped as the giver of life. And here is Hapi, the Nile River, the giver of life, bleeding out. The Nile turned to blood. (coughs) Another one, the fertility goddess Hakate, her symbol is a frog the giver of life, the fertility god, goddess. And here are frogs piled up dead and rotting in the streets of Egypt. Some fertility godness, uh, goddess goddess Hakate was. And then there's a plague of livestock designed to mock all the sacred bulls of Egypt. Isis had bulls' horns. Hathor has a bovine head. The god Ra is embodied as a bull. And they all drop dead at the word of the Lord. Amen Ra, the sun god, and the ninth plague, which is actually in a couple weeks, target of the wrath and judgment of God. His rising is considered to be a sign of the coming of life, and his setting of death. But when God speaks, Amen Ra's light no longer shines, and even the sun god is judged, and darkness reigns over Egypt. Here are the magicians of Egypt exposed as powerless practitioners of pagan deception. Here's the gods of Egypt, unmasked as frauds, as empty, weak, powerless idols. The plagues of Egypt are designed to tell us that idols are empty, worthless things. The plagues of Egypt are designed to tell us that devotion to anyone or anything other than Yahweh, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, will one day mean being reduced to a laughingstock. God is mocking the mighty claims of uh, Egypt's magicians and their mighty deities. And he reduces them to absurdities. Every single plague is tied to an Egyptian god. Frog symbol of life. I'm going to give you lots of dead frogs. The Nile River, symbol of life, is going to bleed out. Livestock, multiple, multiple Egyptian gods, they all drop dead. Even the sun god, how about darkness? God is demonstrating his power over all of these false gods. It's an unmistakable message to the Egyptians. Because where do you turn? When it gets dark, you pray to the false God, the false sun God, and it stays dark. I think it was G.K. Chesterton who said, when we do not believe in God, the alternative is not believing in nothing, it's believing in anything. Be careful where you place your faith, be careful where you place your trust, be careful where you place your hope. Be careful where you place your confidence. If it's not in the Lord Jesus Christ, then it's an idol. And someday God will expose your idol as utter foolishness. And so the first part of the pattern of the judgment of God comes in exposing counterfeits. Second has to do with warning rebels. And we're gonna see this again in two weeks, but for now it's important to realize that God's not simply acting in wrath, he's also acting in mercy. Every time Moses speaks, he offers Pharaoh a way out, a way of escape from this judgment to come from the next plague. If only he'll bow before the Lord, align his will with the one true God, if only he'll obey what God has said. And so God warns rebels. We see it especially in Exodus 9. Exodus 9, verses 18 through 21. Behold, about this time tomorrow I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never been, uh, has been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now therefore send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter, for every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. What's going on? Judgment's coming. God's telling them. If you don't listen, if you don't obey, you'll die. Flee the wrath of God. That's what God as sending Moses to tell Egypt, judgment's coming, flee the wrath to come. And those who fear the word of the Lord heard the warning and were spared. It's not a difficult point to apply, is it? The plagues and judgments of Egypt foreshadow God's wrath. And what we're seeing here is not total wrath. These judgments serve as a warning. These are hints and shadows and glimpses of the holy wrath of a just God, who will one day hold all the world to account through an ultimate judgment. And so he's warning us, flee the wrath to come. Fear the warning of God. Hear the word of the Lord and find safety in his mercy. There's still time. Second Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance, even the Egyptians. And so he's warning them. And by warning them, he's warning us. He's warning us that he will not wink at sin, that he's a just judge. And while there's still time, we should flee the wrath to come. And then the third part of the pattern of God's judgment is the hardening of rebel hearts. That's particularly seen with Pharaoh. I'm not going to spend a long time Uh, a lot of time on this today because it's a major theme for next week's sermon. But it's important for us to see today that Pharaoh seems utterly unwilling to submit to Moses' warnings and to God's rebuke. And these chapters before us talk about the hardening of Pharaoh's heart in two contrasting ways. Sometimes it says that Pharaoh hardens his own heart, and other times it says that God hardens Pharaoh's heart especially clear if you look at the very end of our passage, the very end of chapter 9, beginning of verse 10. It says, uh, 934, When Pharaoh saw the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. So even as we read in Romans earlier, our responsive reading, hardening, mercy. The goal of both is so that you may know the one true God, that you may know that he is the Lord. Who hardened Pharaoh's heart? Well, Pharaoh hardened Pharaoh's heart. And yet it's the will of our Lord that Pharaoh's heart should be hard. Who's responsible for Pharaoh's rebellion? It's Pharaoh's responsible. And yet the Lord, in his sovereign providence, governed even Pharaoh's rebellion, that his heart might be hardened, that God might execute his judgment, that the world might know there is no one like the Lord, our God. And so once again, the big idea, the macro theme in the plagues is that God wants to be known. And if he's got to wreck your life with a hailstorm to get you to pay attention, an umbrella is not going to be enough. I told a high school Sunday school class earlier this morning, I said, I've been doing this almost 25 years now, and every now and then somebody comes in and says, oh, Dr. Dave, my life's hit bottom. I said, oh, no. It hasn't. You're not even close. Repent now or it's going to get way worse than it is now. Because God will bring you down as far as he needs to bring you to get your attention. So Repent now or your life will get worse. And most people do, but sometimes people don't. And sometimes people come back three, four, five times. My life is still terrible, no kidding. You haven't done any of the stuff that I said. You haven't repented, you're not reading the Bible, you're not doing any of this stuff. I got nothing else for you. You've ignored me five times, I'm out of ideas. Repent and be saved or it's just going to keep getting worse. And every now and then it just keeps getting worse. That's real people and real lives in this area. And to be honest with you, it really hurts to watch. Knowing there's just not much you can do about it. If people choose to harden their hearts, you can plea, you can beg, you can pray. But at some point... It's them and God, and they always lose. So once again, the big idea is God wants to be known. Even in this pattern of judgment, of warning us, of showing mercy, of bringing judgment, it's all for the purpose that we might know him. But you can also see how he displays his character as a just judge and a gracious savior uh, and how he protects the people of God. In these passages, he protects the people of God. The plagues don't come to the Israelite, not even darkness. It says, it's still light in Goshen. They don't get the gnats, they don't get the flies. So you have the priority of knowing God, the pattern of the judgment of God, and the protection of the people of God. God's raining down his wrath on Egypt, and yet at the same time, he preserves his people. They're safe. Look at Exodus 8, verses 20 through 23, the plague of flies. The Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water and say to him, sort of the same beginning for each plague, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. Or else, if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses, and the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall happen. And you see the same thing if you look at chapter 9, verse 4, or chapter 9, verse 7, or chapter 9, verse 26, or chapter 10, verse 23. Again, and again, and again, as the plagues fall on the enemies of God, the people of God are safe. There is a safe place in the land of Egypt, and it's where the people of God dwell. There is safety and refuge from the judgment and wrath of God, and it's where the people of God are gathered. There's only one place where you're free from judgment and condemnation. And it's by taking your place through faith in Christ and the great assembly of the believers. It's by belonging to the people of God. And there, and only there, is there security from just judgment. If you're a believer in Jesus today, 1 Peter 1 tells you, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ according to his great mercy He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, key verse, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You are being kept by the power of God for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. You are safe. Through every trial, in the midst of every storm, God will hold you secure. He will keep you safe, and no wrath will ever fall on you. Romans 8.1 There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But it also means if you're not in Christ Jesus, condemnation. There's a real clear dividing line God says, I'll make a division between my people and your people. And if you have fled to Christ, if you are hiding away in the land of Goshen, so to speak, where the people of God dwell, then you are safe from God's wrath for eternity. What a privilege it is to belong to the people of God. But how vulnerable we ought to feel if we remain exposed living in Egypt, rebelling against the Lord and his rule. And once again, God is displaying his character to us as a just judge, at the same time, a gracious Savior. So where does that leave us? Well, to answer that question, we have to go back to the beginning. At the beginning of the sermon, I asked you a question. Do you remember what the first commandment says? And then I answered it. Exodus 20, verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. It's The first commandment, not just first in order, but first in priority. And I said, all the other commandments are a reflection and grow out of the first commandment. To have no other gods means that God has an exclusive place of prominence and obedience in your life. It means there's no one greater, no one more important, no one more worthy of worship. There is nothing greater than God. And the lesson that God wants to teach Egypt and wants to teach Israel and wants to teach us is the same lesson. He wants all to know that he is the Lord and there is no other. And in Israel's case, this lesson through the plagues resulted in their deliverance. For Egypt, this lesson through the plagues led to their judgment. And for Pharaoh, it led to death. The God of the universe has no rivals. He must be obeyed because he is God. And yes, it's true, he's full of love and mercy and grace and redemption, but he's full of all those good things exclusively. Any attempt to get those good things from anything else is not only foolish, it's dangerous. Human beings set up false gods and pagan idols in an attempt to gain control over our lives. We set up counterfeit gods in in order to give ourselves what we want. But loving, trusting, and obeying false gods never works. And the false gods become self-destructive. Listen to what the psalmist says about this. Psalm 115 The idol of your heart always turns on you. Whatever you thought you were controlling begins to control you. Your gods become the means of your own destruction. This is what happened to Egypt. It's what will happen to any of us when we pursue counterfeit gods. You you probably don't think of yourself as an idol worshiper, but that's because your definition's too narrow. Tim Keller, in his excellent book, Counterfeit Gods, I recommend it. He helps to expand our understanding of idolatry. He writes, what is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. A counterfeit God is anything so central and so essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. There's many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something, but perhaps the best one is worship. So the fundamental issue in play with idolatry, regardless of the object, is whether this good thing that we love, trust, and obey more than God is truly worthy of our affection. And the biblical answer is that nothing is worthy of our love, trust, and obedience except God. People are consumed by their idols. And like Pharaoh, they ruin their lives despite the obvious truth in front of them. These idols aren't going to help them, they're not going to save them, they're not going to make their life better. Look around, Loudoun County. A person can be consumed with a career, making money, achievement, saving face, not being shamed, social standing, having a perfect family, a romantic relationship, beauty, intelligence, sex, power, control, happiness, all counterfeit gods. But these counterfeit gods will drive you into the ground if you try to appease them. False gods are destructive, and it all sounds so hopeless, but it isn't. The book of Exodus is designed to show us the power of the one true God, the God who redeems, the God who delivers, the God who rescues, the God who saves. This book, and especially these chapters on the plagues, Show us that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the one true God. He's supreme above all rivals. If you trust him, believe in him, place your faith in him, you'll be spared from judgment. Disobey him, follow your own path, and your counterfeit gods will turn on you. Let me finish by asking you another question. Probably shouldn't have said the word finish. Finish. Let me ask you another question. Why does God protect his people? Look again at Exodus 8, 22. On that day I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. You know, God's goal with the judgment and God's goal with the deliverance is the same that you'll know he's God. If you miss that, you're missing the point of all this. And notice here how Moses stands as the pivot point in every single one of these acts of judgment. Moses warns Pharaoh, Pharaoh resists. Moses acts, judgment falls. Then Pharaoh asks Moses to pray, make it stop. Moses prays, it stops. Then uh, then Pharaoh hardens his heart, And then we start all over again. And we do it ten times. It's a picture to us. I mean, when Moses prays, judgment is lifted. And it's a picture to us of God's perfect servant, mediator of a better covenant, the one greater than Moses, by whose obedience and blood, by whose perfect intercession, the wrath of God that ought to fall on each and every one of our rebel hearts is lifted. And not merely because he asked, because he himself has paid. The wrath of God has fallen, but it fell on him that it might not fall on us. The safe place, the land of refuge, is entered by faith in Jesus. When he obeys for you and bleeds for you and intercedes for you, the wrath of God that your sin and my sin have incurred is taken away, having spent itself on Christ crucified. See, the beauty of the message of the Bible is that your creator has made deliverance possible. God delivered his people through the blood of his son, Jesus, on the cross, and his death became the means by which reconciliation and forgiveness and deliverance is made possible. He rescues people from their slavery to false gods so that we can understand the priority of knowing God. God wants to be known in and through all of his mighty acts. So we can understand the pattern of the judgment of God, that God is warning us to flee to safety. So we can understand the protection of the people of God, that God will always preserve and secure those who trust in him. Place your faith in him, you'll be safe forever. So for the last time, the big idea, the macro theme in the plagues, is that God wants to be known. Now I'll close. Another quote by Tim Keller. The living God, who revealed himself both at Mount Sinai and on the cross, is the only Lord who, if you find him, can truly fulfill you, and if you fail him, can truly forgive you. This year, how will you respond to that? Will you turn back to your false gods and pagan idols, or will you turn to the one true God? This year, whom will you know? Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin, that we might see our idols, that we might see our idolatry, and then see our Savior. Teach us the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. Help us to tear our idols from our hearts, to bow before Jesus, even now to repent, not with words, not with just our lips, but from our hearts, to run for refuge to Christ and there to find pardon and cleansing and forgiveness. Lead us to greater worship as you reveal yourself as our rescuer, our deliverer, our redeemer, and our savior. And for this we give you thanks. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.